Chapter 1 Werner Marx May 9, 1923 to February 3, 1965 Tracy's dead. I have to say the words to myself many times a day so I can begin to believe it. Knowing that death is coming does little to mitigate against the impact of its arrival. Like hearing the sound of a distant train whistle, you're vaguely aware a train is coming. Only too late do you look up and see it bearing down when you suddenly realize you're standing on the tracks. There's no way to anticipate or prepare for that moment, the one that forever divides before from after. She is with you. Everything you say and do is part of a conversation. There is another. Your beloved is present. You are in relationship. Consciousness has circularity and reciprocity. It cycles from one to the other and back again. Then suddenly it does not. There is no other. You are alone. You are talking to yourself. And it literally happens in one second. The definitiveness is overwhelming. You are impaled by the sharp clarity of that one insurmountable difference. You have crossed over from our time together to forever apart. There is no going back. In an instant, day becomes night and will not return. The physical feeling is unforgettable. It was like having my stomach squeezed from the inside. Pressure, inescapable tightening. For the first time in my entire life, other than illness, I had no appetite and took no joy in food. For almost the first time, I couldn't sleep. The first days, I'd awaken between 4.15 and 4.27, the echoing moment of her death. I was lucky if I could sleep steadily for two straight hours. Now, as I write this, one month later, I still wake up two to three nights each week at that time. At least I don't sob now. I meditate and fall back asleep. I was and still am so grateful that I was awakened by her side as she passed. She lay in a portable hospital bed in our bedroom, two feet from where I slept on what had been the bed we shared for 13 years. At around midnight, the quality of her breathing shifted to something more raspy. She was still able to swallow the two milliliters of Haldol I squirted into her mouth. At around 2 a.m., she started sighing and slightly moaning at times, so I gave her one milliliter of oxycodone. That seemed to work and quieted her. I gave her another two milliliters of Haldol at 4 a.m. After I lay back down, I started feeling guilty for not checking her diaper. Then at 4.15, her breathing got more gurgly. I didn't know if she'd swallowed the Haldol. I think she had, but I worried it had collected in her throat. So I gave her one milliliter of oxycodone to help her breathing. That for sure she may never have swallowed. But I raised the head of her bed to help her breathe more easily. The gurgling continued, so I sat beside her stroking her forearm. Then she opened her eyes pretty wide and immediately half-closed them. Then came a big exhale. It wasn't her final breath. There was more gurgling and foam was collecting on the left side of her mouth between her lips. Her half-closed eyes were glassy. Then she took what turned out to be her final last small breath or two. I spoke after or just before those final breaths, 
the only words that came to mind, go in love, go in light. I realized she stopped breathing, but checked by stupidly holding my hand to her nostrils. She'd been exclusively mouth-breathing for at least 24 hours. It must have been then that I noticed a tear on her cheek. As she was leaning slightly to her left side, it had escaped her left eye and was sitting on her cheek. A tear of sadness? Of final farewell? Of fluid buildup in that eye? Who knows? But I found it so deeply touching, so perfectly Tracy. I will wonder for the rest of my life what Tracy saw just before her final breath, when she suddenly opened wide her eyes. They had been closed for some hours. She seemed startled. She was staring straight ahead at the makeshift altar I had created, candles burning. But I doubt she saw that. The portal to the other world opening wide. The white light people talk about. Her mother and possibly even her father opening their arms to greet her? What awaited her when she passed through that gate? And I ask myself now, why didn't I kiss her one last time? I was nine years old when my dad died, and I didn't get to witness his final moments. It was 16 years before I knew all that actually happened to him. When I got home from school that day, right away I knew something was different. Two of my father's college students were holding each other on the living room couch. They seemed startled to see me. My child mind made up the story that I caught them necking, and they were embarrassed. The male student told me solemnly, your mother wants to see you in the bedroom. I walked into her room. She was working at the little desk in the corner by the windows. I stepped toward her. She turned and said, Fred, your dad is dead. I don't remember saying anything. Maybe, oh. She might have said more. Maybe she said he died of a heart attack. But what I remember is her turning back to the work on her desk. I guess it's time for me to leave, I thought. I walked into the bedroom I shared with my brother Larry, who was four. He was sitting on the floor playing a game with our family friend, Ruth Lorba. He looked up brightly. Hey, Fred, did you hear Dad is dead? Yeah, I said and walked out. It was only then I remember hearing my 11-year-old sister crying behind the closed door of her bedroom. I looked into the living room and saw the student couple necking, quote, unquote. Maybe they looked forlornly at me. I don't know. They were probably consoling each other. What I suddenly did know was that there was no place for me to be alone. I went to the only place left in our house where I could close the door to be alone with my confusion. I went to the bathroom. I put the toilet lid down and sat. What does this mean? I couldn't wrap my head around it. I listened to my sister crying across the hall. My agitation bloomed. I needed some place to be. I felt stupid sitting in the bathroom on the toilet. I didn't want to be there, but I had to be somewhere. But where? The restlessness in my body needed some place to go that could hold it. I walked out through the living room to the utility room, got my coat and hat, and went outside.
I remember a sunny day, though it was February 3rd and there was snow on the ground. Outside, I had no better idea where I could park my body, but at least I had escaped the house. I found my friend Steve Osborne coming home from school. We exchanged pleasantries. How does one talk about these things? I felt like a liar and a fool. When we got to his house, his mother was at the door. How's your father, Fred? Parents seemed to have secret modes of communication. They knew everything. I blurted out, My dad's dead, and threw myself into her arms and sobbed. I didn't know, Steve called out guiltily. Fade to black. Woulda, shoulda, coulda. They're part of my inheritance and likely part of everyone who has lost someone dear. All the things said and undone come rushing to the fore, along with all things said and done that provide the fuel for endless revisiting, searching for previously unseen keys in all prior encounters to unlock the codes of death. Death is mysterious enough when not hidden from view. Once hidden, left undiscussed and unaddressed, it becomes a black hole, sucking all subsequent speculation into perpetual darkness. I learned this lesson well from losing my father, even more so because my feelings about him were so ambivalent. After his death, I would lie in bed at night ruminating on all our encounters, especially the most recent. Was it the last time he beat me that I told him I wished he were dead? Was it some previous time? Did he really respond by saying, someday you may get your wish? Or did I just imagine it? When he beat me with his belt, did I often say, I hate you? Or was it only once? Did he really praise the fact that I love Peanuts comics to our family friends? Did he ever once say, I love you? I was haunted. His sudden and permanent exit at the unlikely age of 41 taught me at nine that death is an ever-present possibility. We never know where or when it might strike. Unlike lightning, it can be on the sunniest of days. The weather, the place, the circumstances, with others or without, clothed or unclothed, fed or hungry, anxious or at peace, prepared or not, all these conditions are irrelevant. Death will strike. Any second, any minute, any day. In the wake of someone being disappeared, somehow beamed up to another place in time, those of us who remain become, like the aptly named TV series, The Leftovers. Dad's death also taught me that dying is always available as the final solution. Its dramatic finality is accessible any time to resolve any problem. It puts all outstanding questions or problems to rest. Whether problems with myself or problems with others, it solves everything. So death became the logical endgame for any situation I found myself in. For any and all problems, large or small, it was the default option. I can always kill my adversary or myself. Even minor conflicts or challenges could be solved through death scenarios. Properly absorbed and contextualized, put in its place, death can be a great teacher and guide, reminding us to remain up-to-date 
always complete with as many people and situations as possible. But imaginatively sought as the end zone for every challenge, it becomes debilitating. Death became my great panacea. Q. Neurosis. Still, I couldn't grasp its embodied essence. I couldn't comprehend its finality. How can it be that someone is in your life one day, seemingly forever, and the next day gone forever, without a trace? My dad literally vanished. What accounts for this? I would lie in my bed trying to understand. Forever, and forever, and forever. And forever, and forever beyond that. And forever, and forever beyond that. Each time I said forever, I would pause until I could collect myself. Then, once I felt like I was beginning to grasp it, I would say forever again, piling it on, over and over, repeatedly, until I started to get dizzy and I could feel myself floating, becoming weightless, losing my moorings in time, drifting upward into an endless future. It was my first reckoning with infinity. I willed myself to understand it. Without knowing it, I was trying to land an intellectual concept in my body. It scared the shit out of me. Despite their intensity at the time, I largely forgot those nights of Empyrean terror until 50 years later. I was on a Zen retreat, reciting the Heart Sutra. Then it hit me. Gate, gate, para, gate, parasam, gate, bodhiswaha. The Les Hickson translation? Pure awareness is transcending, ever transcending, transcending transcendence, transcending even the transcendence of transcendence. This is awakened mind, swaha. There it was. My childhood experience suddenly reflected back to me in sacred text, the infinite described, transcending transcendence, transcending even the transcendence of transcendence. More than simply described, the infinite was pointed toward, with the pathway to realizing it made clear. The text doesn't describe death per se. It describes something beyond death, and something beyond life, something eternal and unversed, boundless and free. In my juvenile way, I was reaching for that same expression, beyond dualities of on-off, night-day, in-out, trying to fathom what lies beyond the cycle of birth and death. With the clarity of perfect hindsight, transposing this sublime adult perspective over my real childhood distress was a stunning aha moment for me. Or, as hollow-boned Zen practitioners say, swaha. A similar experience occurred again in my fifties, again while on meditation retreat. Meditating one morning... I realized I'd been a closet meditator since my youth. It started in mid-adolescence, when I was 15 or 16 years old. Nights when I arrived home drunk and stoned. Before going to bed, I would sit in a lawn chair on our back stoop, staring out at the yard, peering into the darkness. I was aware of the extremely loud ringing in my ears. I created a game for myself that I loved to play. I'd listen for the sounds of the night, to see if I could hear them above that infernal inner ringing. There wasn't much to hear. The little neighborhood in our small town of Champaign, Illinois, was pretty quiet. 
There might be a squirrel, an occasional breeze to make the oak leaves rustle, to make the pine needles sway. What I most wanted, I believe, was to come back into stillness, into clarity. I wanted to find myself again after being away, lost in a wash of substances, hiding in personas to make myself liked, drifting in fears unconsciously felt, unacknowledged. But even if I could have articulated it, I don't think it was myself I was looking to return to. I didn't like myself enough to seek that. It was the not-me I was seeking, my non-self. Just clarity, resting in awareness, being alert and comfortable with what is. After pausing for a half hour or more, I would go to bed. Even if my ears were still ringing, I always felt renewed and calm. Though it took me 35 more years to recognize it, I had taught myself meditation. Though I partied much less as I got older, I irregularly recommenced an unconscious yearning for meditation. In 1991, when I was 36, Pam Marks, Chuck Olin, and I were finishing Out of the Silence at Chuck's studio in Chicago. It had taken us a long time to find the proper form for the story, and the year of final editing had taken its toll on all of us. Pam asked me one day what I'd like to do when we were finished. The first thing that came to my mind was an image of the statues on Easter Island. I said I'd like to sit beside one of those statues, facing east, to look out over the ocean, to see what comes, no matter how long it takes. What I yearned to say but didn't yet have the skill to recognize was that I actually wanted to be one of those statues, to sit, back straight, eyes open, unmoved, not swayed by anyone's needs, not needing anything myself, present and alert to all. To sit there like a statue, timeless and awake, to touch and retouch the eternal. How and why it took me so long to get my ass to the cushion to officially learn meditation is inexplicable, yet somehow also the story of my life. When I finally found my way to my first meditation retreat in 1995, I was terrified. I couldn't imagine a worse fate than four days of silence alone with my own mind. Those were the days of Hoop Dream's phenomenal ride, my breakout film, and I was still enraged at my partners. Did I connect any of those formative stories, any of my previous aspiration toward so-called mindfulness with this event? Not a chance. But I was wholly aware of my fears. I can't talk for four days? Are you kidding me? I assumed I'd spend my time as I often did, revisiting wounds, fantasizing revenge, swimming in the pools of fury. Then to top it off, I imagined thinking, and I'm paying money for this? Instead, to my amazement and everlasting gratitude, I experienced four days of increasing calm and clarity. I discovered that if I just stayed present to what was actually happening here and now in my life, that it was invariably better than anything that was going on in my mind. I find insufficient the expression, my mind is a runaway train. My mind is a hijacked jet piloted by a suicide bomber. Thank God I found meditation. I don't care that it took me 40 years to realize I'd been unconsciously reaching for Buddhist teachings since I was a child. 
Though the cliché, better late than never, holds much truth for me, so does the little-known quote from Mark Twain. I've lived through some terrible things in my life, some of which actually happened. When I was nine, I was too possessed by shock to be obsessed with fear and loathing. On the way to my dad's funeral, I walked to the car with my dad's younger brother, the man who at ten was led by my 15-year-old father out of the rioting city of Frankfurt after Kristallnacht to the care of Dutch refugee officials, who spent those next 12 months as the war began with a Dutch farm family, only to be fetched by their half-dead father who somehow managed to escape Buchenwald to claim his boys and spirit them across the Atlantic on one of the last ocean liners to make the voyage to New York City in January 1940. My uncle put his hand on my bony shoulder and said, Well, Freddie, you're the man of the house now. Nowadays, we laugh at the inappropriateness of such statements. Maybe in the back of his mind, he was thinking about what he would have done if my father hadn't been there to save his life. But his words didn't seem inappropriate to me. I wanted to be that man, to care for my mother, older sister and younger brother. I wanted to live up to that responsibility. I thought my father's death and my uncle's recognition somehow combined to anoint me a man. It would be many years before I understood the conceit of that. I was no more a man than my sister or brother or mother. But that moment planted a seed in me, one that would germinate one that would continue germinating throughout my lifetime. How to become that man of integrity and honor I yearned to be. How to hold responsibility for the well-being of those I love. My mother thought it unwise for us children to attend my dad's burial, but we did attend the funeral. I remember counting the bricks behind the altar as a way to focus my mind. Most likely it was accomplishing something like the opposite, diverting me from my feelings. I couldn't really comprehend what was happening. How could I suddenly be at my father's funeral? The man who was walking and talking with me a few days before, the pillar of my family, my dad, the earth to my moon. How could I be going to fourth grade, a kid like all the other kids, then suddenly be different, separated, told it's not okay to participate in recess with all the other kids, when that's in fact what I wanted very much to do. I remember my sister sobbing through much of the ceremony. I couldn't yet experience the emotional dimensions of this new reality. I was in shock. Most of the adults around me were probably also in shock. He was so vital, seemingly in great health, suddenly gone at 41. Someone whisked the three of us kids home rather than to the cemetery for the burial. Just as both my parents thought it inadvisable to share the truth with us about their political past, they had been communists, and my dad was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee and subsequently blacklisted. My mother thought it wise not to have us witness the last rites. Admirably well-meaning choice, big mistake. Just as we grew up sensing that there was a secret to our parents' history that explained much of their behavior, my siblings and I subsequently suppressed much of the emotional reality of Dad's death. It's a system I've never seen succeed. 
Parents who think they're doing their best to protect their children from harsh truths only succeed in driving the unnamed pain deeper. What isn't faced and addressed directly surfaces later in sideways dysfunctional behaviors. While secretly obsessing over it, I grew up officially disregarding death, shrugging it off as no biggie, never grieving, thoroughly ignorant to how the repressed grief, anger, and fear would drive much of my behavior until the source issues were finally met. Noteworthy examples. The sudden abandonment by a girlfriend when tears spilled out of me in a torrent during my 32nd year. The betrayal by a business partner when rage devoured my pancreas, contributing to me becoming an insulin-dependent diabetic in my 42nd year. The terror and obsession with dying shading my entire life until the death of Tracy in my 60th year. All of these losses opened abandoned minds, all leading to the same underground chamber of my father's death. A wound like that doesn't go away. It lodges underground until surface drilling coaxes it to life again. There followed many years in which my dad's name was never spoken in our house. I drove all my questions and fears inside and never once had a conversation with my siblings or mother about my dad. Though the term didn't exist for another 15 years, I basically grew up with post-traumatic stress. With my peers, whenever they asked about him, I simply said he was dead. That ended the conversation. They never inquired further. When other friends' fathers died, it always seemed an element of high drama. One was a captain who died in a plane crash. Another hung himself in the family garage after being pursued by police for embezzling bank money. Their deaths were elements in action-adventure stories. There was plot to follow and narrative to provide closure, even if some wore the black hat of the bad guy. My dad was a good guy. He wore the white hat yet his death seemed like inexplicable happenstance. I unconsciously searched for ways to understand it. Judeo-Christian practices, which I never studied but nonetheless absorbed through the dominant culture, struck me as thoroughly inadequate superstition. So that dynamic of outward silence and internal chatter about death continued for many years. It no doubt contributed to my readings into Eastern spirituality in my teens. When I was 14, I picked up Alan Watts' The Book off my parents' shelf. Five years later, I read Ram Dass's Be Here Now. Those guides and other books about Eastern philosophy provided productive means for me to think about all the big questions, including my father's death. On the 16th anniversary of his death in 1981, on the advice of her therapist, my mother decided to finally assemble the family at my father's gravesite. It was my first time there. We stood in the deep snow in front of his modest stone and observed a simple Jewish service led by a thin, threadbare young rabbi who seemed to have stepped out of the pages of Dostoevsky. Since I had arrived in town hours earlier, Wearing only sneakers, my mother graciously bought me my first real pair of winter boots, which served me well for the next 35 years. Afterward, we retired to her therapist's office, 
where we spent the next few hours asking any questions we wanted about his death. It was then that I learned how unintentionally complicit my mother was in his dying. Following his first heart attack at home on the night of February 2nd, she was by his side in the hospital the following morning. Try, Werner, try, she said, as he lay on the bed monitored by machines. He did. He sat up. Then his heart completely gave out and he fell over, dead. Hearing this episode did little to reinforce faith in my parents' wisdom. I concluded a number of things. It's stupid to exhort people to exert themselves further when they're already in bodily distress. Better to encourage them to relax, breathe, and be at peace. It also confirmed for me the futility of macho behavior. No man is so great a fool as when he ignores his present circumstances through assertion of will. Though my father's tremendous force of will had powered him through the Nazis, through the McCarthy period, through a new country, language, and culture, through poverty in the Second World War, when faced with the reality of death, he finally succumbed to hubris. But even these revelations never solved the mystery of his dying so young, which the autopsy only deepened. There was suspicion of his having a congenital heart defect, but this was never confirmed. The autopsy was inconclusive. Most likely it was hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, first discovered in 1958 and certainly not commonly understood or diagnosed in 1965. But the doctor did suspect he was pre-diabetic since he had slightly elevated blood sugar levels. Had my father lived longer, he might well have manifested full-on type 1 diabetes. That seemed like a productive explanation, since most long-term diabetics die from cardiovascular disease and eventual heart attack. I was exactly his age at death, 41, when first diagnosed with diabetes. That year was a huge psychological hurdle for me, as I'd spent a good number of months preceding that birthday with low-level dread. Maybe it's my turn to die, I thought. Having survived that year with tremendous relief, it was only decades later that I made the age connection between the onset of my diabetes and his. Maybe I didn't get away so cleanly after all. We had other significant commonalities that emerged, too. Six years after that belated funeral ceremony, in another session with my mom and her therapist, I reflected on how lucky I was that Dad had died before the wild years of my teens. In keeping with the fashion of the day, I grew my hair long and wore ripped jeans and beads. I always assumed my father would have hated that look. Instead, my mother startled me by responding, Your dad was a nonconformist. He probably would have been fine with all that. Certainly the voice of my internal critic, that sense of never being good enough, is his voice, or one patterned after his. He was an educated, brilliant, cultured man. Even within his short lifespan, he accomplished a lot and seemed capable of anything. Everyone loved him. Roger Ebert revered him, and when I met him, he told me my dad was part of why he became a film critic. When my dad died in 1965, Roger wrote a beautiful handwritten note to my mom, expressing his love and admiration. 
Success and high achievement were what my dad simply expected. Love was not so easily won. Even today, I still carry his judgments as self-hatred. Robert Bly, one of the godfathers of so-called men's work, says American men are the walking wounded, unconsciously seeking their father's blessing. That's a fair summation of my life and most of the men I know. The evidence of that wounding and all that unconscious seeking is too great to recount here, though a great deal of my artistic life has been spent studying the issue. Suffice it to say that too many men are suspended adolescents, ruled by their fears and unconscious appetites, still trying to prove something to daddy. Unfortunately, given the immeasurable extent of horrible consequences, those men largely run the world. I unconsciously steered away from strong type A males through my teens and twenties. I projected all the worst aspects of my father onto them, thought them arrogant, full of themselves, self-appointed leaders seeking obeisance. I was equally unconsciously drawn to the company of women and gay men. I felt my emotions were safe with them, and I could risk being vulnerable. It was many years, not until 1995, when I started men's work and for the first time began to understand how even the toughest men are precious and tender if approached in the right way. I learned only then, as a heterosexual man, how to give and get love from other men. My life was never the same. Within a very few years, my poles entirely flipped, and I found myself more comfortable and trusting of men than women. Then, in 2002, I met Tracy. She alone was responsible for helping me redress and rewrite the balance, where hopefully it remains today, trusting of and open to the hearts of both men and women in equal measure.